Edward Albee sat down with moderator Lawrence Sacarell for a one-on-one interview in December of 2000. I'm Susan Stroman, a member of Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. Good afternoon, everyone. Hello, can you hear me? I can hear me without this, right? Uh, I'm David Diamond, Executive Director of Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation, and very pleased to welcome you this afternoon to our one-on-one conversation with Edward Albee. This afternoon, we're very pleased to be co-sponsoring this event with the Fordham University Theatre Department, and uh, doubly glad to have the head of the department, Larry Sacro, as our interviewer this afternoon. Um, I just wanted to make a couple of quick announcements before we get started. Um, if you have to leave before we're finished with this uh, seminar this afternoon, you can exit up through the back. That would probably be the easiest way to go. Um, also, please look at the back of your program. We have some upcoming events for the foundation, and we'd encourage you to join us for those uh, throughout the year. If you want to get on our mailing list, there's a list outside, and you can put your name and address on there, and then we'll send you information about those upcoming events. Let's see, anything else I want to say? It's really a pleasure to be here, and it's a pleasure for me to introduce the chair of the theater department of Fordham University, a director, um, director of um, Three Tall Women by Mr. Albee, and our moderator this afternoon, Mr. Larry Sakharov. Thank you, David. Uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce Edward Albee this evening. Uh, most of you who are from SSDNC uh, certainly know the body uh, of Edward's work and the enormous scope of uh, great and masterful plays that he's contributed to the American theater. But there are a lot of younger people, and we're very fortunate to have students here from the Fordham Theater Department. And so I just would like to say a few words about that scope of work, the, beginning with Zoo Story that Edward wrote and became a defining moment in the American theater, certainly in my life as a college student seeing it in New York City. And that play opened up a world of writing and a way of seeing the world that was then followed by American Dream and shortly thereafter, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and the enormous um, A Delicate Balance. And the body of work began to enter into the language of the culture in a way that writing can do when the culture begins to adapt phrases from the plays. And I still remember those of us and my generation repeating Jerry's line in Zoo Story, sometimes a person has to go a very long distance out of his way to come back a short distance correctly 
as one of those extraordinary Zen-like moments that pierced the veil of perception in such a heightened, dramatic work that opened up your access to the work on many, many levels. The basic drama, and then what the drama opened up in terms of your perception of yourself and life. And to follow shortly after a play like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with Tiny Alice, which to me is a play of remarkable vision and the, the mind that can encompass that perception of both the material world that we live in and this other dimension and pose questions of the dialectic between the material and we could call it inner or spiritual or this other dimension of reality change the context of drama from being more than just a looking glass as a reflection of society to taking us through the looking glass to see what's beyond the veil. And the body of work continued with Three Tall Women. And it, this season, the revival of Tiny Alice, a new play by Edward Albee, uh, about to open in January, two new plays next year that will feed the New York City Theater and the American Theater and enrich us, so that the work has become something that creates in its totality a vision that challenges our limits and preconceptions of how we see the world. And it becomes more than playwriting itself, but a poetry of the theater. And more than any other contemporary living writer that I know of, I feel Edward is a poet of the theater in the best sense of what poetry can do in terms of changing our vision of the world. So, again, would we please give a, an incredible welcome to Mr. Albee. It's downhill from there. <laughs> Tell you that. Nothing to do now but to take off. I'm glad I'm here. The only other place I could be this evening would be the opening of Tiny Alice, which is happening in 40 minutes, but uh, I know the play. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's a real nice production, but uh, I was at rehearsals a few times, and I never go to opening nights of my plays anyway. Opening nights, it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> it's either going to be marvelous or they fucked it up beyond repair <laughs> by, the, by that point. So I usually go to the movies. But uh, this is more fun. Uh, a bit, little bit more about me. One thing that uh, Larry did not mention, and he probably should have since there are so many directors here. Not only do I write plays, I've written 27 of them now, which I guess makes me not quite as lazy as I sometimes think I am. Uh, but I'm also a director. Uh, I became a director because I had written a play called The Zoo Story, and I had begun to evolve the theory that if you write a play, especially if you, if you write them the way I do, 
which is to be writing at my desk. And as I am writing the play, seeing it and hearing it as I write it, seeing it and hearing it as a play being performed in front of me, not some kind of ephemeral reality, but seeing it as a performed piece as, as I write it, it, it occurred to me that I have a pretty good idea of what the thing looks like uh, and, and what it sounds like. And maybe I should, you know, direct them from time to time. Well, I didn't direct the first production of the zoo story, uh, which was in Berlin in German, which is a good reason I didn't do that. Uh, nor did I do anything but uh, stand in the wings and sort of supervise the first New York production. But uh, a couple of years after the zoo story opened, there was going to be a production of the play deep in the foothills of Pennsylvania, fortunately it turned out, and uh, I decided that I was going to direct it. They couldn't stop me. It was my play. Uh, They said, have you ever directed before? I said, nah, don't worry, don't worry. And I had two very good actors, uh, an Afro-American actor named Terry Carter uh, was playing Jerry. Terry went on to be in a futuristic television series for a long time, and then I don't know what happened to him. Very good actor. And so we went into into rehearsal with this play. I played the zoo story, me directing. It was, without question, the worst production of any play of mine I have ever seen, (laughs) except possibly two college productions in West Texas, and the Broadway production of Lolita. Without question, the director, me, didn't have the faintest idea of what the play was about. (laughs) (laughs) Or if I did know what the play was about, and I did, I had absolutely no ability at, at that point to let the actors in on the nature of the characters. I was, I was really awful. I was really terrible. And I'd never studied playwriting. I'd never gone to, you know, famous playwright school, those matchbooks they used to have. Which you open them up, and you may, maybe some of you are too young, some not. And you say, if you can draw this, you can be a famous artist. Study at famous artist school. I, I, didn't, I didn't do any of that with playwriting. I, I, I went to school as a playwright. I, I paid a lot of attention to Chekhov and Pirandello and Beckett and, and earlier types as well. But uh, it suddenly occurred to me after watching my virgin, if you will, experience as a director, that there was probably some craft involved in directing. <laughs> this had never occurred to me before. And, and that since I was determined to direct my work, and ultimately other people's, and I, I, I have ended up directing uh, but, but Sam Beckett and, and, and David Mamet and, and Sam Shepard and Lanford Wilson and various other playwrights, um, that maybe I better learn some of the craft of directing. I noticed that there were a number of directors around the world who were directing my plays. Um, Peter Hall in England, Ingmar Bergman in, in, in Stockholm, in Paris, Franco Zeffirelli in Italy, and Alan Schneider and others in New York. And I said, hey, that's a good faculty. And so I went and, and I sat in on the rehearsals of these plays of mine that these directors were directing. And ultimately, I, I, I gained confidence and I think a certain amount of expertise and um, ended up directing the, a lot of the world premieres uh, of my plays. 
I'll give you one example of, of, of a good review I got as a director uh, from, um, who is that uh, strange man? Fortunately, I think his mind is going, so he can't be quite as nasty as he used to be. Uh, uh, John Simon. John Simon. Uh, <laughs> when I directed the, the world premiere of my play Seascape on Broadway, uh, I remember he wrote in, in his review of the play that Albee's direction of Seascape I directed it myself. Albee's direction of Seascape is so clear, so precise, so spare, so right on target that we can see without any question how terrible the play is. <laughs> <laughs> Which led me to the conclusion that one should only read the first half of John Simon's sentences. <laughs> <laughs> because something terrible happens to his mind when he gets to his predicates. Uh, no matter. So not only, not only do I write plays, but, but, but I direct uh, uh, quite a lot. Uh, I run playwriting workshops every spring at the University of Houston, where I work with young playwrights and, and, and young directors, so I guess I'm also teaching and directing as, as well as playwriting. Now, I was told by Larry that we were going to have some professional directors here, today, as well as uh, younger theater students. And I thought this would be an occasion for me to read a short piece that, that I wrote a couple of months ago uh, about, uh, about playwrights, about playwriting, and, and about directing. It might set up a, a, a proper and healthy uh, antagonistic atmosphere in the room, uh, but why not? Uh, be patient, because it, 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 I think it's a rational argument that I'm making. This is called, Why Read Plays? The question is so absurd that we need not only answer it, but find out why it's being asked as well. Most simply put, plays, the good ones at any rate, the only ones that matter, are literature, and while they're accessible to most people through performance, they are complete experiences without it. Adjunctively, I was talking to a young conductor the other year whose orchestra was shortly to give the world premiere a performance of a piece by a young composer whose work I admired. Oh, I can't wait to hear it, I said. And the conductor replied, well, why don't you? Why don't you read it? And he offered to give me the orchestral score to read and, and, and thereby hear. Alas, I, I, don't, I don't read music. Music is a language, but it's foreign to me, and, and I cannot translate. If I did know how to read music, however, I would be able to hear the piece before it was performed. Moreover, in a performance uncolored, uninterpreted by the whims of performance. This is an extreme case, perhaps, for few non-musicians can read music well enough to hear a score, but it raises provocative issues, including some parallelisms. Succinctly, anyone who knows how to read a play can see and hear a performance of it exactly as the playwright saw and heard it as he wrote it down without the help of actors and director. Knowing how to read a play, learning how to read one, is not a complex or, or daunting matter. When you read a novel and the novelist describes a sunset to you, you don't merely read the words, you, you see what the words describe. And when the novelist puts down conversation, you silently hear what you read, automatically, without thinking about it. 
Why then should it be assumed that a play text presents problems far more difficult for the reader? Beyond the peculiar typesetting particular to a play, the procedures are the same. The acrobatics the mind performs are identical. The results need be no different. I, I was reading plays, Chekhov, Shakespeare, long before I began writing them. Indeed, long before I saw my first serious play in performance. Was seeing these plays in performance a different experience than seeing them through reading them? Of course. Of course it was. Was it a more complete, more fulfilling experience? No, I don't think so. Naturally, the more I have seen and read plays over the years, the more adept I've become at translating the text into performance as I read. Still, I'm convinced that the following is true. No performance can make a great play any better than it is. And most performances are inadequate, either in that the minds at work are just not up to the task, no matter how sincerely they try, or the stagers are aggressively interested in interpretation or concept, with the result that our experience of the play as an audience is limited, is only partial. Further, and, and not oddly, performance can make a minor or terrible play seem a lot better than it is. Performance can also, of course, make a bad play seem even worse than it is. God help us all. When I'm a judge of a playwriting contest, I, I insist that I and the other judges read the plays in the contest, even, especially, especially if we've seen a performance. And how often my insistence results in the following, either, wow, that plays a lot better than the performance I saw, or, wow, the director sure made that play seem a lot better than it is. The problem is further complicated, compounded, by the kind of theater we have today for the most part, a director's theater, where interpretation, rethinking, cutting, pasting, and even the rewriting of the author's text often without the author's permission, are considered acceptable behavior. While we playwrights are delighted that our craft and art allows us double access to people interested in theater through both text and performance, we become upset when it becomes a double-edged sword. I'm convinced that in proper performance, all should vanish, acting, directing, design, even writing and we should be left with the author's intention uncluttered. The killer is the assumption that interpretation is on a level with creation. I'm not trying to suggest that people shouldn't see plays. There are a lot of swell productions. But keep in mind that production is an opinion, an interpretation. And unless you know the play on the page, the interpretation you're getting is secondhand and may differ significantly from the author's intentions. Of course, your reading of a play is also an opinion, an interpretation, but there are fewer hands and minds in the way of your engagement with the author. I felt I had to get that out mm. off my chest because mm. I'm a little worried about uh, some stuff that is happening in our theater, especially in our, some of our regional theaters, where the playwright is expected to allow dramaturgs and, 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 and other criminals <laughs> to uh, revise their work, insist on revision and, for, and reinforce revision 
not always to the benefit of the play, but, 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 but quite often to make the play safer and easier for the audience and the trustees of that particular theater uh, to, to accept. So uh, I speak, when I'm having written that piece, I speak as a director as well. Now, the very best directors I've found do not feel that it is their right or responsibility, nor, nor would they want to alter a playwright's intention. There's a fine dividing line between alter, altering a playwright's intention and, and, and realizing it in a way different than the author had specifically intended. But it is, that, it is that fine dividing line that we should always keep in mind. No? Mm-hmm. Um, since that was a wonderful phrase of everything disappears when, mm-hmm. um, when there's a, the, a real truth in a production, when you... Uh, work with directors, and in particular in the beginning, how do you begin to develop a dialogue and start communicating with a director uh, who's directing your play? And then we'll extend that into mm. how do you do that with yourself when you're directing your own play? Uh, and what, what was the climate in the early days when you wrote Zoo Story and much of your early work, and you ran actually a program for playwrights, you know, the, the, down at the uh, Van Damme Theater, right. that uh, there was a very different kind of process of development that had nothing to do with bringing in dramaturgs and et cetera to critique plays, but rather it was an experience of seeing the play. What's the difference in that process for you in the beginning? Well, the first question you asked had to do with how does a young playwright start dealing uh, and working with a director. Yeah. The first thing, of course, is to get to know your director a little bit, know something else that the director has done, and become convinced that the director plans to direct the play that you think you wrote. You know, there are a lot of wonderful directors who would be totally wrong uh, for certain kinds of plays. Uh, you have to I think, develop a relationship. Alan Schneider was, my, was basically my first director, and, and months before we went in rehearsal, Alan would have read my play many times, and he would come to me with pages and pages and pages of questions, uh, subtextual questions, basically, about, uh, about the character's backgrounds, nature uh, of, of the character, who they were uh, in relation to each other. And I startled myself by realizing that I knew the answers to these questions uh, never having thought about them before. I mean, in other words, I was inventing subtext uh, or trying to remember the subtext I'd put in when I was writing it. Uh, a congenial environment when you and your director have the same goals, which is the, 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 a clear, intelligent, and, and, and affecting reading of the play. Uh, and uh, if you find, have the sense that the director feels that uh, you, the playwright, are a small cog in a large wheel... I think it's time to, you know, move on, get yourself another director, perhaps. I'm not trying to suggest that the director need be subservient to the playwright. There are uh, great values in an intelligent uh, director as as an editor uh, uh, for a playwright. But there must be an empathetic reaction there. There there must be the same goal. And and your sense that the director is going to be able to get at that goal, which is your play, as clearly... uh, and as, and, uh, as effectively as possible. Um, 
everybody has interesting ideas and a lot of good ideas during the rehearsal procedure. Actors have good ideas, you know. You know, this, is this five-sentence uh, speech here, you know, that's a sentence too long. Maybe it is. Half the time it'll be a sentence too short. And you, and you have to point that out to the actor that maybe there should be another sentence in there. Uh, you know, you know, you can be told if you're a playwright that you know your, your stuff so well that you've left out a mandatory scene because you don't think it's necessary, but the director may say, you know, you better think about that. Maybe there's a scene you should be putting in there so we will understand what you understand. And that can open wonderful doors uh, uh, to the playwright. This is a wonderful collaborative work on the play, not an attempt to change the play, because nobody should direct a play he doesn't admire or respect, and, and no, nobody should do it. But, of course, most directors end up 75% of the time directing junk because that's what they're offered and that's what most people want to see. But, you know, um, everybody's got to make a living, though. But um, a, a congenial uh, relationship between author and director where you know that the, that the director has the same goal that you have and then you can work out the details. At the same time, I don't think any play should go into rehearsal if it needs a great deal of work. I mean, I'm forgetting musicals here, which are nine hours long when they start and only five hours when they finish. But uh, I don't think a play that needs a great deal of rethinking and revision should go into rehearsal in the commercial theater. Considering the three and a half weeks you have before first tech, it is not time to rethink and, and, and rewrite a play. And so... I think any play that needs a great deal of work, the suggestion should be made by the would-be director, perhaps. You know, you've got some more work to do here. Do that. I don't know how different it was when, when we all started out. Um, um, the theater was not as commercially crippling a place as it is, as, as it is now. The so-called stakes, the economic stakes, were, uh, were, were not, not as high. If you have a producer named Richard Barr who puts on Crap's last tape in the zoo story at the Provincetown Playhouse in, in January of 1960, and the total production cost was $2,200. That's a lot different from the fact that you try to do those two plays now off-Broadway. It would probably cost around $250,000, $300,000 to do it. And people could come in for 2 and $3 for, for a ticket rather than the 45 to 50 that off-Broadway has the effrontery to charge, to charge these days. Everybody had a lot more fun. Everything was easier. Everybody was building their, their talents, and, and it, was, it, was, it was a lovely time. Uh, commerce ha hadn't gotten in there quite so badly yet. It was nice. When did you start directing the premieres of your own work, and uh, after your initial directing experience with Zoo Story and you went through your wonderful apprenticeship <laughs> and education with all of those great directors you named, why did you start directing again or many years later? Because I retained my conviction that nobody knew as precisely what I wrote as I did and nobody could see or hear as precisely what I had seen and hear while I was writing the play. Uh, as me. And uh, I'm very interested in having somebody see, maybe as a standard or to work against, the author's view of what he wrote. Because we, we some of us, we, we do have a very, very clear vision of the way our plays should look, uh, look and sound. Not the only way they should look and sound, but there is some virtue in, in, in the author's 
point of view. And so why not, if you know, know your craft as a director, why not do it that way yourself? Say, hey, this is, this is what I saw when I wrote it. You want, you want to do something else? Okay. Maybe, you, maybe okay. <laughs> how do you struggle um, in a new play when you're directing the premiere with what may be the difference between uh, playwriting problems or needs and directing, and how do you deal with yourself? <laughs> well, um, uh, all writers are schizophrenic, and, and so it helps. Um, <laughs> it, it helps to be able to be uh, thematically. Uh, it, it's, uh, you really have to uh, be two people. Now, when you're directing, you're concerned. When you, when you write it, you're concerned with, with you know, it's the director's responsibility to say, that is not going to work. You know, there's nothing you can do to make it work. And, and a wise playwright understands that. Uh, and when I direct my own work, uh, I have conversations with myself uh, about problems in, in, in the text. And I usually win them. <laughs> uh, for the benefit of the play. Sometimes I, I win them as director, and then sometimes I, I win them as, uh, as, uh, as author. It's a little tricky sometimes. There are some actors who are not too happy to be directed by the author until the author can really persuade them by the end of the first day of rehearsal. That, as I say all the time, I see, that's a problem for you. Well, I will take it up with the playwright. <laughs> and they realize that, that I am there as, as, as director. I mean, I'm, I'm probably quicker uh, to make cuts and changes in a play of mine than any director is because I can usually tell my excesses and my self-indulgences a, a, a little quicker. I usually wait, even though I know what should be changed. Uh, I want to make the director happy if I'm not directing, so I usually wait until the director has figured it out, and uh, which is a couple, probably a day after I have, and then let the director make the announcement. <laughs> is there a difference when you direct other people's work do you feel a different sense of responsibility, um, relationship to the material than when you direct your own work? I have the feeling, uh, could be wrong, but I don't think so, that uh, playwrights have an insight into the intentions of other playwrights that maybe other people don't have, that we, we, we understand something about, about the creative procedure and, and, and the creative act, and that maybe we... We, we, we see the play, well, we certainly see another playwright's play from, uh, from a playwright's uh, perspective. The only danger if you're directing somebody else's play, if, if you are a playwright, is to try not to impose your, your, your own view on things. I, I would never direct the work of another playwright if I didn't like the play and admire the play a lot. I, I admire the play. I find as when I direct other people's plays, and even my own, I learn more about playwriting, about my craft as playwriting by, by directing other people's work. Uh, Lanford Wilson, we, I was directing um, a short play of his in um, Vienna, in English, and uh, I said, Lanford, you know, we should, we should talk about this, this a little bit. There, 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 you know, there are a couple of pages here that he said, Edward, I know, I overwrote like mad. Cut it. I said, but Lanford, he said, cut it. And I did, and I showed him the text, and, and that's the text that he's been using ever since, which is nice. Uh, but you really have to be very careful. Let me tell one story. Uh, I was directing Beckett's Happy Day, no, uh, Crap's Last Tape, uh, down in Houston about uh, 
eight years ago. And if those of you who know Crap's last tape, for those of you who know Beckett, he was, and the Beckett estate now is, very, very, very strict. Don't fuck around with the text. It's, 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 it, you know, even if you're Bob Brustein, don't fuck around with it. With, <laughs> especially if you're Bob Brustein, don't fuck around with <laughs> Don't fuck around with the text. And uh, so, you know, I, I admire Beckett enormously, and I'd seen Krapp's last tape, of course, first at Berlin in German when it was done with my play when it was done in German. But then, then I'd know the play very well in English. And I was directing it down in Houston. And uh, we were in about the third week of rehearsal. And there is in, in that play uh, a point where Krapp, who was listening to tapes of, of his past life and, and, and recording uh, his present views on, on, on his own consciousness, uh, goes off stage from time to time, three times in the text, to get a drink. He leaves his desk. He, he, he walks off stage. We hear him walk off stage. We hear a, a, a whiskey bottle being popped open. We hear glug, glug, and he comes back. That happens three times in the play. We're in the third week of rehearsal, and I said to my actor playing crap, so one character play, said to my actor playing crap, hey, wait a minute. That third time that you're supposed to go off for the drink, I, I suddenly heard myself saying that, and I said, what are you doing, Edward? This is Sam Beckett you're dealing with. He's a god. What are you planning to do? And I said, instead of going off stage that third time, he said, it says it in the text. I said, I know, I know. Let's try something. Uh, get halfway off stage, think about it, turn back to the tape deck, look back off toward the liquor, don't go off stage, and go back to your tape deck. We tried that. It worked an awful lot better. And I left it in, knowing that it was something that was not in the text. There was a conference, a Beckett conference in Houston, a week after we opened. <laughs> and all these... Beckett scholars with their, his biographer and, and everybody, you know, Ruby Cohn from San Francisco was there. Everybody, all the Beckett scholars were there. And uh, Jim, uh, who wrote the Beckett uh, Damned to Fame, the big biography, Jim Nelson, uh, came up to me after he'd seen the performance of, of the Craps Last Tape that I directed, and he said, Edward. I said, hi, Jim. He said, oh, I noticed you did something interesting there in Crap's last tape. I knew what was coming. He said, I said, yeah, I did. He said, you didn't have him go off stage the third time, did you? I said, no, I didn't, Jim. He said, well, I want to tell you something, Edward. When Sam directed that play himself for the last time, that's exactly what he did. Huh. Huh. Which, you know, confirmed my feeling that maybe playwrights have, have an insight into each other's intention. Huh that uh, just quite possibly sometimes other people don't have. Huh. Fascinating. When someone else is directing your play, um, how involved are you in the rehearsal process? And how much input um, would, does a director have? Would you take suggestions from someone else the way you did with Lanford about um, something that may need some editing? And it's a reverse. You mean if the director made, made recommendations to me? Yeah, yeah. Well, now, as you, as, you know, you to as you know, Larry, there's only one thing more boring than directing a play. I mean, you, you're directing a play. You sit around for seven hours, and maybe there are three minutes 
in the entire seven hours where there's something useful that you can say to the actors, you know. <laughs> we, 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 all, we all know this, you know. We don't, we don't admit it, but, uh, but, but we do know it. Uh, and if there's anything more directing, boring than directing a play, it is sitting there while somebody else is directing your play. <laughs> I mean, I mean the, the first day of rehearsal when the actors haven't started acting yet uh, and they're going by instinct is usually the very best performance of the play you're going to get until a week after it opens. You know, and then the rehearsal process goes and, and all of the intuition on the part of the actors vanishes. The play is... is, is, is goes down to nothing and has to, maybe with any luck, being built back up again to what it was when it was written. Uh, um, what was your question? I got so interested in my answer, I forgot. <laughs> Two-part two question. How involved are you in the rehearsal process, which you've been talking about? And I answered that one. Yes. How do you um, feel about suggestions from a director who's well, working with if you? You've worked, if, if you and the director have, have rapport, if, if you know the director's work and respect it, uh, if you and the director have talked about uh, your play and you feel relatively confident, you're going to leave them alone for a while. You'll be there for the first day of rehearsal. You and the director will have talked a lot before, before rehearsal begins about, about, about all sorts of approaches, stylistic, uh, best to avoid any discussion of the meaning of the play. The one thing that the professionals do not discuss in the theater, playwrights or directors, what the play means. And certainly you cannot, if you're a director, you cannot talk to actors about what their characters mean and represent. Because if there are some things that cannot be acted, you cannot act meaning, you cannot act metaphor, you cannot act symbolism. All you can act is the moment-to-moment, three-dimensional reality of what is happening to the character in relation to the other characters. That's all that can be acted, and ultimately that's all that can be directed, and everything else is based on the playwright's ability to make all of that wonderful. Yes? Okay. Um, I've forgotten the question again. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Keep talking. Uh, after you've been there for the first day, you, you go away for a week. Mm-hmm. And then you come back, and if they're on their feet a little bit, maybe the actors some have, have some questions uh, about about some subtextual matters, you know. And, and, and I think any director knows that 90% of the job of being able to do a good production on the play is hiring the right actors. We all, we all know that, all of us who direct. Hire the right actors, and, and you're pretty close to home free. Uh, not, not, not bad. But you have to work as a director with um, the subtextual needs of your actors, and, and actors have different needs of subtext. Can I tell my zoo story story? Mm-hmm. Okay. This is true. This happened to me as a director with my own play, The Zoo Story. About, uh, I was directing a production of it about seven years after I wrote it, eight years, with a then young actor studio, now dead, alas, uh, actor named um, Ben Piazza, who was playing Jerry. Wonderful actor, good friend of mine, good novelist, too. And, Jer- and all you have to know about uh, what I'm talking about, in The Zoo Story, the character Jerry has a rather complicated relationship with his landlady's dog. That's all you really have to know. And he came up to me the first day of rehearsal, and he said, Edward, when Jerry was growing up, did he have a dog? And I remember saying to him, not being able to remember the subtext that I had imagined when I was writing the play, but I'm not convinced that I imagine subtext when I am writing the play. I don't think I am. 
I think the characters that I'm creating know the subtext so well that I don't have to worry about it. Anyway, uh, I thought about Ben for a minute, and I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, you know, you grew up, your family had a chicken farm uh, out in New Jersey, about 60 miles from New York City. Well, a, lot, a, lot, a lot of chickens around, and there were a couple of horses and some goats, and there were six dogs on the farm. And I told him their names and, and, and their, their breeds, and, and I, I told him when he was six, seven years old, you know, which of the dogs was allowed to sleep on his bed and things like that. And I told I made up a few stories about stuff with the dogs. And he liked all that, and he nodded. We never discussed it again. And he did a lovely performance. Ten or twelve years after that, I was directing another production of The Zoo Story with totally different actors. And damned if the actor playing Jerry didn't ask me pretty much the same question, rather than what Ben Piazza said when, when Jerry was growing up, did he have a dog? This guy said, when I was growing up, did I have a dog? Now, you don't always, as a director, get asked exactly the same question. In, in, in two different productions of a play, but I do them. It's a fairly important, important matter for the actor playing Jerry uh, to know. And I remembered what I told Ben, and I suddenly stopped myself, because I knew this new actor, and I figured that he would work a little bit better through deprivation. So I said, you know, boy, did you want to have a dog when you were a kid. <laughs> but, but your father... He hated pets, and, and he hated dogs. I don't know what had happened to him. Maybe a dog had bitten him when he was a kid. I went on and on. And I, <laughs> and I, now they were also, therefore, I was also giving his father's history, too, just inventing as I went along you know, as, as a playwright director. And I said, boy, you wanted to have a pet, but your, your father wouldn't let you have one. Uh, your next-door neighbor, a little kid you were friends with, their family had a litter of puppies, and your little friend gave you one of the puppies. shouldn't have done it. And you sneaked it into the house, and, and you put it, you know, shredded newspapers in your closet floor, and you put the puppy in there, and you kept it very, very secret. Shh, be quiet. And you got away with this for four or five days, except one night your father, who never came to say goodnight to you, you know, but was walking by, and for some reason the puppy was yelping. He came into your room. He opened the closet door, saw the puppy. He picked the puppy up by the scruff of its neck, and he took you by the ear, and he took you both to the bathroom. He kicked the bathroom door open. I like that. that. That one touch was so good. He kicked the bathroom door open, and he held you there, and he made you wash, watch while he flushed the puppy down the toilet. Now, so that was an invention. That was a subtext that, that I gave the actor. And uh, he nodded, and he ended up giving a very good performance. The question comes up, of course, and this is something the directors know, which of those subtexts is true? And the answer is they both are. The subtext that is necessary for the actor to become the character is the subtext that is valid. And that's one of the reasons why playwrights have trouble talking to actors, because they, they, they feel so absolute about things. And act, and a playwright has got to learn to be subtextually flexible if, if he's going to be asked ask, ask questions uh, uh, by actors. It's one of the things you have to learn, especially if you're directing your own work. It's an extraordinary insight because there are some playwrights who tell you exactly what they demand yes. the subtext is for each character. It doesn't matter who the actor is. No, of course. 
Well, that, that, that's so, uh, that gets in the way so much. I tell everybody the first day of rehearsal, especially if I'm directing one of my own plays, look, I want you to do whatever you want as long as you end up with exactly what I intended. <laughs> you know, that's extremely liberating yes. in terms of working. It, it, gives the illusion it, gives, of, it gives the illusion of freedom of action. <laughs> it, it also opens up the there process. There are many ways of getting at, at, at the destination. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't like to see a, a production of a play of mine, one that is an absolute duplication of the other, as long as the characters are identical, the lines don't get changed, and, and, and the, the experience of the play is the experience that I wrote. I don't care how you get there, but you've got to get there. You're sitting down with uh, a director who you're talking to and deciding whether you want this person to direct your play. Mm-hmm. What... What are you looking for in that conversation, in that meeting? What makes you say, oh, yes, I think this person could direct the play, or no, this person couldn't? His shoes more than anything else. Color of the shoes? The color of the shoes, the, 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 the quality of the shoes. I don't know what it is. It's, it, <laughs> it's like everything else. It's intuition. You know, some con- rational conversation helps, and it does help if you've seen some other work that the director has done. And you can ask the director a couple of questions about why choices were made with this other play. And, and you find out a little bit more about the way the director thinks. Mm-hmm. It, it helps. But uh, intuition is a, is a large part of it. You can make mistakes. But I find that in, in casting, uh, that's what, one of the reasons that I like to go to cattle calls. Is I find you know, a third of the actors that I end up using uh, being sent to me with, without agents. I, I, as a director, I always go to cattle calls because I, I see a lot of wonder, wonderful new, uh, new people. But you just have to uh, use your intuition there. It's very important. I mean, you, you create intuitively, you direct intuitively, but the mind is working uh, fast at the same time. But intuition is terribly important. Mm-hmm. you have any examples that you remember of other directors who have directed your plays who either did something that you thought was enormously detrimental or on the other side, conversely, or and or, something that you felt, gee, I learned something from what this person did and that was interesting. The first is always easier to find. You know, uh, a production of uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf that I saw in uh, first in Saratoga and then in Tokyo, same, the same production, where the director got the bizarre notion that everybody should be dressed in dinner clothes uh, throughout the entire play, and that the floor of the stage should be translucent black glass. And it was, you know, it was har- hardly a, a, a New England faculty house. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, on, and, and on top of all, all of this bizarreness, uh, he, he placed an absolutely naturalistic reading of the play. There was absolutely nothing wrong with what he was doing, except the people couldn't act in, 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 uh, in, in that environment. Uh, the production of, of uh, my adaptation of Nabokov's Lolita on Broadway uh, was an, uh, a disgrace. I, I, I learned uh, both fear and loathing, mm. uh, more loathing than fear, I must say, uh, uh, of, of the person who directed it and uh, the person who uh, was theoretically starring in it. I found at that time that uh, as author I could fight uh, the director, I could fight the star, and or I could fight the producer, but I couldn't fight all three. Mm. 
and uh, I lost control of the production. And it was appallingly bad. And guess who got all the blame? Mm. Me. And I, I suppose I should have shut it down. But, you know, you, you have a production that just, you know, with a little luck, it, it may turn the corner and come out right. You just keep on going, and then all of a sudden you're in previews. And then, nah. Anyway, uh, I learned an awful lot about that. It's m- more difficult to um, answer the second one about uh, directors who, or, and or actors uh, who have taught me things uh, that I didn't know that I knew about the play. The problem being there, there being, that I don't think a director or an actor can find anything that is right in the play that is not already there whether or not the author knew he put it in. You follow? Mm-hmm. It, it's really got to, it's got to be there somewhere. Mm-hmm. The sense mm-hmm. of it has, has to be there. And that's that dividing line between creative interpretation and distortion. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's very hard. I've worked with some, some lovely directors who've done, well, you included, who've done, done some absolutely lovely things. You helped me make a couple of uh, shifts in a few of the emphases in, uh, in uh, Three Tall Women. And I tried to nudge you into directing the second act a little more naturalistically than you wanted to. And uh, it all worked out just fine. It certainly did. Yeah, it collaborated well. Yes. Um, we have a production now of Tiny Alice opening tonight. Mm-hmm. Yep, they're up. About to go on at 7 o'clock. Um, 6.30 it went up. Oh, 6.30. In, th- in theory, yes. Uh, and there was an original Broadway production, two different directors, uh, yeah, not in the original production. No, the original so. production had one director. The revival that's opening tonight has a different director. Uh, yes, of course, because the director who directed the original production died. Yes, we know that. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, while I have worked with, with, with dead directors, I'd rather not do it. You know. uh, we, we can work with dead playwrights, but not dead directors. Uh, yeah. the, the question as is... As, as long as they're no longer protected by copyright, you can. Yes. A playwright does not die until his copyright runs out. Do you see a difference in the productions um, of Tiny Alice? Is there something, because there's a different director, is there a difference that you see in different productions? Well, no, two, no two productions are, are, are identical. In the, in the original production, we, we had John Gilgood play, playing Brother Julian, and in, in, in this production we have Richard Thomas. Uh, both splendid actors. I don't want to do a, do a relative quality thing here. They both bring extraordinary benefits uh, to, uh, to, to, to the production. Mark Lemos is, is a very, very, very splendid and, and flamboyant director, which is what Tiny Alice needs. Uh, Alan Schneider uh, was a very good director for it also. The play, it's hard to tone that play down. You know, mm-hmm. It really wants to take off from its moorings. And you have to control it a little bit. Uh, a very di- is the production very different? I think the same play is there. Uh, some choices were made here and there. I, I made a few cuts. Uh, as I made a few cuts in the in the rehearsals of, of the first production because I I made interesting mistakes very early. I make I still I make more interesting mistakes now, but early on I made very interesting mistakes in the zoo story. In the original text, after Jerry runs on the knife and, and is lying on a bench, dying with, with, with a knife in, in, in his belly, in the original text, he had a monologue this long. 
you don't do that. <laughs> and so after I directed it a couple of times, I, I cut that monologue way, way down to nothing. In Tiny Alice, in the original production that we, that we went into rehearsal with, after Brother Julian gets shot in the belly and, and is lying on the floor bleeding to death, he has a five-page monologue, which during rehearsals, because John Gielgud said that no human being could, could act all of those pages, by which he meant he could not, therefore no human being could. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and he was right. I, I cut it down by about half. And for this production, I, I cut that half that was left down by half again, and it's, it's much better now. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you learn. Uh, I find that in a play of mine, if I'm seeing a halfway decent production or a rehearsal of a halfway decent production, and I'm bored, I know I cut. Because if I bore me, it's not, you know, it's not too easy for a playwright to be bored by his own, the sound of his own voice, you know. But you learn, you learn a little bit about uh, what is going to work and what, what is going to hold an audience's attention. You, you begin to learn this stuff. And I find that if something bores me, I, I cut it instantly. Hmm. So this, is this production very different? No, I don't even know if the audiences are very different. There were some people there uh, early on who had seen the original production 35 years ago. They, they, they tottered into the theater to see this one. And uh, they seemed to like it just as much. They didn't tell me whether it was very different. I don't think it can be all that different. It is the same play. It is performed uh, with, with the same integrity. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe audiences... Uh, are different now? Well, I'll find out more about that in the next uh, week. Look, that's an interesting question because that play certainly was ahead of its time when it was first produced. And I think there's a, a huge amount... As long as, long as it hasn't gone behind its time. Well, I'm, I'm, my question is when you've been watching previews and things, do you feel the audience is more up to speed with the play that well, this see, generation... I, 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 never, I never know which members of the audience have read the play before they see it. That's one of the things you can't judge in, in, in a revival, because the play has been published. Have they read it before? This mm-hmm. Now, a brand new play that nobody's had the chance to read, then uh, you can tell an awful lot more about the, the nature of the audience response. Mm-hmm. It's hard with a play that they, they either have either seen before or can read before they see it. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to open up to questions, and I want to remind... Um, everybody, about what you read in the beginning. There's something fascinating uh, in terms of there may be questions about the relationship of a director's interpretation of a script as opposed to seeing what the author has written and uncovering what's written. And that distinction is quite interesting. Um, Here's an example before you get to that. Uh, Sometimes you can see a production of a play that, well, let me take an example. I, when I was in Vienna a few years ago, um, Peter Brooks, Paris-based international acting company, they act, they act in French, uh, came through Vienna with Shakespeare's The Tempest. It was a brilliant and extraordinary production of The Tempest, uh, about as good as Peter Brook gets. Really, really wonderful production. But I know The Tempest. I'm convinced that somebody who was seeing The Tempest for the first time wouldn't have had the vaguest idea what was happening on that stage. Mm. It was a production of the play for people who knew The Tempest. It was theme and variations. All the lines were the same. But it was the the comprehension of that production 
dependent upon you knowing the text. And, mm. and, and knowing the Interesting. Did you ever see Giorgio Strehler's the Piccolo Teatro from the Milan production of The Tempest? No, no, I didn't. No. Uh, that was also equally visually brilliant, and I, don't, I think you didn't have to have known the play to mm. understand it. No. Questions? Uh, yes. We regret that this question was inaudible on the original master tapes. We're going to go directly to the answer. I made a rule a long time ago that I will not let a stranger rewrite a play of mine. Thirty years after I've written a play, I'm a stranger. I'll cut, maybe, but I will not rethink. If I've discovered that I've written a play that I totally disagree with, I'll write a play contradicting it. But, yeah, but, or maybe uh, make something a little clearer, but not to, not, not to contradict, no. If, if, I, if I disliked what the play was about and I, did, I thought it was really awful, I, I, I'd pull it from production. I wouldn't allow it be done, to be performed. Much, much wiser to do it that way, I think. No, nothing was cut from Honey, but when I was directing a, a production of it on Broadway with Colleen Dewhurst and Ben Gazzara, I took out a half a page in Act One where um, uh, George was saying to Martha before, the, uh, before Nick and Honey came in, just don't start in on the bit about the kid. Just don't start t- telling about the kid. I realized that I didn't want to alert the audience to that at that particular point, and I wanted the audience to be, to be surprised by a child when Martha first, uh, uh, first mentioned it. And so I cut up half a page there. But that's the only cut that I'm... Aside from the first day of rehearsal where I think I cut a to- total of three pages uh, from the text. But no, uh, nothing of Honey's was cut that I can recall. I would, think, I would think I'd know. No, did it seem like it was? We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Well, uh, the first actress, who's a, a lovely, lovely actress play, playing Honey, uh, did not, how shall I phrase this? Uh, her director did not get along with her. And... Uh, made it impossible for her to continue uh, in the role, though I, I think she would have been absolutely splendid. And she turned out to be a, a wonderful actress uh, as she went on. What was her name? Remember her name? The original one? She, she married Lou Antonio, the director, and, and she's a one actor director. And so we ended up with Melinda Dillon. But uh, our director, Alan Schneider, who for all of his wonderfulness uh, as a director, usually found one cast member to treat like shit. In every, in every production. And he did with her, with her. Lane Bradbury was her name. She was a lovely little actress. And no, I didn't change any lines. No. Mm-mm. You don't, you don't change lines for actors. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. No, it was only, it was only five days. Hmm. No, no that, that didn't happen. I think as a matter of fact, Arthur Hill didn't get in until the end of the first week of rehearsal. Because he was doing something out in California. No, I, I would never, rewrite for the limitations uh, or the wonders of the talent of an actor or actress. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that because you, write, you don't write roles. You only write roles indirectly. Uh, you're writing character. And, and, you, and you can't change a character just because you've got a different, two different actresses playing it. Wouldn't dream of doing it, no. I, I think, as a matter of fact, when I'm writing a play, if I start hearing and seeing an actress or an actor for the role that I'm writing, I, I go away from writing. And, and, and to I don't want the confusion between character and actor. 
We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. There, there is a play called uh, the Lorca play, which I wrote about um, six years ago. Uh, I'm commissioned from the University of Houston, and it was performed down there. Uh, Larry and I have been planning a production of, of the Lorca play uh, this uh, this fall, uh, 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 this coming season. The impetus for the Lorca play, uh, I had known his work, uh, his plays and, and his poetry uh, for a long time. I knew about the reasons that he was killed long before I read the, uh, the Ian Gibson book. Lorca, a splendid poet and, uh, and playwright, a leftist intellectual and a gay man, uh, was killed for all of those good reasons. Very good reasons to kill somebody in something other than a democracy. If he's leftist, if he's an intellectual, and if he's gay. Uh, those are the three reasons that uh, I was interested in, 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 in examining uh, uh, the, the, the play. Uh, I'm doing a little more work on it. Um, I don't think it'll be very, very different than the one I wrote six years ago. But I, listening to it a few times, I think that I was a little hasty, which is why it hasn't had a commercial production until this particular point. Uh, I'll tell you something interesting about Lorca. Um, I have never seen an English language production of a Lorca play, played by Lorca, anywhere near as effective as a Spanish language production of a play by Lorca. There is something, almost every translation of a Lorca play doesn't work as well as, as the play in its original rhythms and its original music. Very, very interesting. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. You've never seen a play before? Oh, okay. Right. I, I was hoping it was the first play you've ever seen. <laughs> so you would have nothing to compare it with. <laughs> We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Who was it a quote of? Me, oh, me. Druckmann. Well, I have to go back a little bit on this, tell you a story. Uh, when we did the original production of Tiny Owls 35 years ago, um, lots of pre uh, full house previews because John Gilgood and Irene Worth were, and Bill Hutt were, were on stage there. And I had a certain little reputation because of Virginia Woolf. So we had a lot of people with previews. I wouldn't say that everybody who was at the previews necessarily loved the play, but nobody seemed terribly confused by it. Then the critics came and said, a lot of them, this play is so confusing that you will not be able to understand it. From that moment, I watched people coming into the theater. They came in confused. <laughs> as if they were going to have to take a test afterwards. Any, any experience, you, you go and let it happen to you the, the way it intends to happen to you. You don't, you don't go in with your pad and pencil. You, you, you don't go in with the scholarly research you've done on it. You, you have to go in and let it happen to you the way it wants to. You have to be a, a willing rape victim. You have to, have to be willing to do that. And that's all that I ask for people. Take, rid yourself of all of your preconceptions. Rid yourself of the play's reputation as being nothing but conundrum, for example, or, or, or balderdash or, or, or whatever. Let it happen to you on its own terms. That's all I ever ask an audience uh, to let happen to them. It's hard when people are, you know, paying 50, 60 bucks and they, they want to 
know what they're getting. But I think we should only really want to go to the theater when startling stuff happens to us that we're, we're not anticipating. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. It, it, it can. Of course, if you've read a play properly, you do see it and you do hear it as, as a performed piece. You, you, you see it and you hear it while you read it. But of course, you don't do it, you don't, can't do that in the community of other people unless you're having a community read, which uh, isn't, isn't a very good idea. Yeah, that is a slightly different experience, and, 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 and it's, it's, it's quite nice when it happens. I know that when people go to movies, uh, everybody in a movie is there individually and alone. Uh, but when you go to a play, it is a community experience. You can't have that by reading the play, quite so. <clears throat> but just balance that against how good the production is that you're having the community experience with. Sometimes it's wonderful. It's a lot. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. John Gielgud was a little old for the role of Brother Julian when he played it. He was 57 or something. Richard Thomas is 50. Interesting, isn't it? He's a pretty young 50, but he's 50. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Why did I set it on a university campus? I wanted the characters who were intelligent, uh, drank a lot, and stayed up late. and lived in a quasi-fascist society, which, which all college campuses are, especially, especially with uh, the, uh, the professorships. Mm-hmm. He's got a question over there. Yeah. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. I, I, I take, no, I take no notes. It's so, it's so simple. I, I think it's so simple. I will discover one day that I have been thinking about a play. I become aware that a play has been formulating in my head. Uh, I had not known until that point that I'd been thinking about a particular play. It's, be- it's very out of focus, very fuzzy. But I have some sense of the destination, some sense of the nature of the characters. And uh, I become aware of it, and I let it go away again. And think about it maybe a month or so later. It seems to be a little clearer, a little less fuzzy. And eventually I come to the point where it wants to be written down. And I never know. I know the destination. I know who the characters are pretty well because I do a kind of uh, author's improvisation, a version of actor's improvisation with characters before I let them be in my play. I'll take a walk on the beach in Montauk, for example, and take my four characters, say, and put them in a situation. I haven't written them down in the play yet, but I know who they are. Put them in a situation that won't be in the play, and I'll improvise dialogue for them for half an hour or so. And if I know them well enough so that they can handle themselves in an improvised situation, I know I can trust them in my play. And so then eventually, I have no idea what the first line of the play is going to be. No idea. I let the characters start. I inform myself of all of the decisions that I've made. It's that simple. I write a play to find out why I'm writing it. And I, I write it to find out why the characters are saying all the things they're saying. I, I know I'm not a fool. I know that they can't speak unless I write the dialogue for them. I know that I am manipulating every psychological turn of the play. I'm, I'm aware, of, aware of all of that. But unless we can play the trick on ourselves, that the characters are doing it for themselves, uh, we can't give them the freedom 
to do everything that we've, we've unconsciously planned for them. And that's about as clearly as I, I, I can explain it, the, the process. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. No, I, I, know, the, I, know, I know the destination. I, I, I know probably far more than I tell myself. I must know far more than I tell myself, because when I start writing the play down on paper, uh, it all makes sense. But I haven't told myself what I know. So there's the unconscious mind and the conscious mind. I transfer it from the unconscious slowly sometimes to the conscious mind, and then I write it down. Hmm. That's the way I do it. I, you know, other, other playwrights <coughs> write 25-page character descriptions and 75-page uh, praises of everything that's going to happen in the course of the play. The only danger of doing that is that you're limited uh, to what you're permitting yourself. And you say, oh, no, I can't, do, I, I can't have my character say that because in, in page 12 of the praise that didn't happen. I, I prefer to be surprised. Hmm. Uh, because the Lorca play was a commission, um, did that same process happen once you agreed to take the commission? What process? The process that you just described about walking around and then the play sort of living in you, and then at one point you start writing it down. Well, it's the same thing as doing an adaptation. Once you uh, start an adaptation or working with, uh, with, with facts, facts are limiting. You've got to find your way through facts and around facts so, so that they don't, don't become limitations, that they must become opportunities for mm-hmm. you. You don't, you can't, well, you can't lie in a play that you're writing by yourself, but you certainly can't lie in a, uh, when people can look up, look up, look up the facts. And you certainly wouldn't write a play about a, a character or, or an, an environment and, and a social political situation that you didn't think was dramatic and effective. Yeah, the, the ground rules are a little different. Sure. I mean, I had, I had Lorca say things in, in, in the play that I have no idea whether he ever said. But now that I had him say them, obviously he said them. <laughs> Other questions? Yeah. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. You see, I think that this, uh, uh, an accurate subtext or, or useful subtext for an actor is going to lead the actor to the character that the author saw. I, do, I, don't, I, I found quite often in rehearsal that if, something, if a scene isn't going well, if, something, if an actor is having a problem with a scene, and the scene seems to me to be written okay, let's say by somebody other than me that I'm directing. I will go in there, lift up the motor, and tinker a little bit with, ask the actor to tinker a little bit with the subtext and, 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 and put the uh, bonnet back down. All of a sudden, the car runs. Quite often. But the problems are, are often a choice that the actor has made about, about subtext that doesn't allow the proper interpretation of a scene. More often than not. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. That's a term of endearment. I have no idea what her name is. That's probably what he calls her. Maybe he doesn't like her name. Hey, honey. He calls her honey. That's not her name. I really don't know what her name is. But then again, (laughs) I I bet he does. Uh, But then again, I don't even know what those characters' last names are. I have no idea. Because I don't need to know. And nobody needs to know. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Everybody should be after the same goal. Uh, it, it ties into the fact that I don't think in, in, in an ideal world, anybody who can work in whether it's a director or, or, or an actor or whatever is going to be working on a play that they don't like. 
and don't respect. But we all know that you end up, everybody ends up doing jobs that they don't care about because they've got to make a living. But in an ideal world, everybody, actors work in, in, in roles that they like and directors direct plays, the, uh, plays that they like. Uh, then the problem doesn't come up very much. Uh, the play is there and everybody wants everybody in the audience to see the play that the author wrote. And everybody goes toward that, that, that particular goal. When, when you get into, into problems, it, it's, it's with a, a, a play that is not very well written and everybody's got to compensate. Then you've got to be sure that everybody's compensating in the same direction at, at the same time. Or the whole, the whole thing becomes chaos. Or you start asking the author to start rewriting scenes two weeks in rehearsal, which is a terrible thing to ask anybody to do, and a terrible thing for actors to have, to have to participate in and a director to have to participate in. In an ideal world, the play will be pretty much all there the first day of rehearsal, and everybody is going to be wanting to do the play that they read. Uh, in, our, in our commercial theater, it doesn't always work that way, unfortunately. How you, how you fix it, as you said, everybody should refuse to work in anything they don't like. That'd be nice. So I know I haven't answered, answered your question, have I? We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Let me tell you, let me, let, let me, well, all right. <laughs> I have to tell you another story. When the first day of rehearsal of my play, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? The producer, Richard Barr, <laughs> Richard Barr, who produced the majority of my plays, took me aside, and he said, Edward, there were, what, 75 people in the room. Four-character play, 75 people. Four actors were there, their understudies were there, the agents were there, the agents' assistants were, were there. Uh, the set designers were there with, with their assistants, and, and there were 75, the backers, the, everybody, the co-producers, everybody was sitting in the room for the first reading of this four-character play. There were 75 people there. And Dick Barr said a very good sentence to me. He said, Edward, I don't want you to get a swell head from this, but I want you never to forget that these 75 people are in this room because you wrote the play. If a playwright can remember that without getting a big head, then I think everybody really understands the proper relationships. It's, but sometimes playwrights are asked to to rewrite because the play is too complex. Simplify it a little bit, you'll get a longer run. I know you've got this wonderful character of this 25-year-old girl, but what's her name who's 47, just lost her TV show? Wouldn't she be wonderful in the role because she'd bring a lot of people in? The pressures start, the pressures to rewrite, the pressures to simplify, the pressures to take the wrong actors because they're more famous. All of these pressures come upon the playwright. In an ideal world, we wouldn't have them. It, it's hard enough for everybody to be aiming for the same goal uh, without all that other junk get, get, getting in the way of it. It's hard enough. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. If, 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 you, if you love theater uh, as much as uh, Arthur Miller and... and Horton Foote and John Guare and the other people in that interview do. If you love theater as much as we do, love the opportunities of working in the theater and, and, and how splendid it is when, when rehearsals are going well and an and, and, and audience appreciates what you've done. If you love theater a lot, your complaints are only 
about those things that stand in the way from that, that love going, going right on. It, it, it's the commercial pressures, uh, the, misunder, the critical misunderstandings, the, uh, uh, an audience who does not want to go to the theater and, and, and have an involving and troubling experience but wants a safe experience. Uh, we all love theater. We wouldn't write theater if we, if, if we didn't love it. We wouldn't be playwrights if we didn't write plays. We, 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 we write plays because we're playwrights. Uh, we love doing it. We wish to communicate. Every playwright wants to communicate very much. Uh, his sense of what's right with the world and what's wrong with the world. We all, we all want to communicate. What we don't like is the stuff that interferes with, with unfettered communication. That's, that's the only stuff we don't, that, that, that really bothers us. I mean, I can't speak for, for the others. I know Arthur, Arthur Miller is unhappy that uh, most of his stuff is done in small theaters these days because Arthur grew up with all of his plays in the large theaters. Uh, and it's only his revivals that, that, that get in the large theaters. Now, that upsets him. But um, we all love the theater very much. I can't think of anybody who writes for theater that I know who doesn't love it enormously. And we don't like the stuff that, that stands in the way of this communication that we want to make. That's the only problem, really. It's a pretty big problem, but it, but it is the only, uh, only serious problem. Is that not so? Well, I think there's a lot of serious problems. Um, and the what you said about loving the theater means that if you have that love in the theater, you will find a place to work no matter what. Mm -hmm. And you will get your work done and you will get it seen because you have to and it is your mission in life. And if you don't have to, then you can complain a lot, but you still won't get your work done. And, and I know John, who asked the question, is somebody who will work in the theater because he wants to and because it's, you need to work in the theater. Martha Graham once said, there's no reason to be a dancer, um, except if there's nothing else in the world that you can do. Mm -hmm. And Martha was magic. And I think the theater's the same way. There's no reason to be in the theater, unless there's absolutely nothing else you think you can do. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Who are you asking, him or me? My favorite movie? Moment in your career. <laughs> Go to the movies. Every time I finish a new play, I have to give you two answers for this one. Every time I finish a new play, before it, it has proven itself not to be quite as wonderful as I thought it was, <laughs> uh, that, that's an electrifying and, and, and wonderful moment, the, fi the finishing of a new piece. But I guess one of the most important moments was... Uh, September 28, 1959, when I had uh, quit my job delivering telegrams at Western Union and gotten on a boat steerage class from New York to uh, Bremerhaven in Germany and taken a train through the Soviet zone, meeting my first uh, Soviet soldiers with Tommy guns and going into Berlin, which was surrounded by the Soviet zone, and uh, seeing the world premiere of my first play, the zoo story, which I'd written on a, in English in New York City in Greenwich Village, on a battered, huge typewriter that I'd liberated from the Western Union Company. <laughs> and, and sitting there in that theater in, in West Berlin, seeing my play being performed in German 
by, by German actors. I don't speak a word of German. Of course, I knew what was going on. I knew the play perfectly well. And they were very good actors. But what impressed me most about what was happening to me, I think, was that I kept noticing, I was sitting on a box up, up stage left, and I spent, I discovered, that I spent less time watching what was going on on stage than I did sneaking looks to see what, what I had written was doing to the audience. <laughs> Testing to see whether or not I was getting through to them, uh, how involved they were uh, in what was happening up there, which was something that I had written. And I probably, that probably was an enormously exciting moment to know that that particular kind of communication was going on uh, and that I, that I was able, through the medium of, 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 the, of the actors, uh, to accomplish that particular concentration and intensity of, of, of several hundred people sitting together. That was good. I liked that. I liked, I liked that a lot. I'm going to ask you a question that I know the answer to, but I love your answer, which I love everybody else to hear. Which, which one of your plays is your favorite play? Well, there are two answers to that, <laughs> as there are to most things, besides yes and no. Um, the one play that I know that I didn't make any mistakes in is, is The Sandbox. And it's only 12 and a half minutes long. Mm. You know, how can you make mistakes in 12 and a half minutes? That's the only play I've ever written that I know I didn't fuck up hmm. in, in some way. But besides that, it is always the play that I've just finished. Always. Now, I've just finished a play called The Goat, which should be in New York next fall, I hope. And uh, that's the one that I, excites me the most. It, it interests me the most. Um, I imagine that now that I've started working on yet another one after that, I've finished that one, I've got another one in my head, Pretty soon that will turn out to be the favorite. But at the moment, it's the, it's the, the most recent one that hasn't been disproved yet. <laughs> That's the one. Was that the answer that I was supposed to give? No, you're supposed to give the answer about how um, some children are more favored than others. Oh, that's another answer. That's the other answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we, 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 you, you have all these kids, and uh, some of them are out earning their own living. <laughs> <laughs> but a whole bunch of them are still living at home <laughs> and nobody cares about them nobody, nobody will date them <laughs> nobody will do anything for them and, 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 and you, I, 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 I developed enormous affection for those plays of mine that are least performed and having, evo- having that affection I, I've evolved the theory which I know is not necessarily true that they have special virtues these plays, which make it difficult for the average person to, to appreciate them, that they must therefore be better than the plays, <laughs> than, than the plays which are more popular. I, I don't believe it for a second, but I'm very, very fond of the least popular ones. I love them. The Man Who Had Three Arms is one of my very, very favorite plays. I think it's a wonderful play. Yeah, I think it's a lovely play, but um, can't find it anywhere. Yeah. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Which play? Three Tall Women? Okay, Larry, talk about it. Well, that play, um, Edward had directed in Vienna, which was the first production, and then um, I read it, and uh, somebody had told me about it, and I read it, and um, I called Edward and asked if I could direct it, and we had a meeting, and... um, 
we uh, decided to work together. And he said, let's, let's do this. And it's actually something that I wanted to pick up on when Paul before asked you about the relative relationship of the sort of so-called cogs in rehearsal. Um, we were casting, and there's an actress that both of us like very, very much, Marion Seldes. And um, we both agreed, gosh, we want Marion in this play, and she came and read both parts for us, um, A and B. And we said, we're not sure, but she said, darling, whatever part you want to give me is fine. And um, I knew. Uh, well. I knew she should be B. Yes. But we had our options open. And then we cast Myra Carter. You had your options done, open. I'd, well, you gave me the illusion that I had my yes, options well, open. <laughs> That's one of the things that a sensible playwright does. It gives directors the illusion that they have their options. It's one of the great things about working with Edward is there's always a dialogue around, well, what do you think? Even if he knows what he ultimately he wants, there's always this sense of give and take and this dialogue that goes on. Um, but both of us and the cast have had a history of absolute... Um, commitment, honor, and respect, and love for Edward's work. So when we go into rehearsal, and Edward came for the first reading of the play, and we, we, the first production was upstate in Woodstock. I was running a theater called River Arts Repertory, and first reading, and we had a cast dinner, and uh, it, was a, it was kind of wonderful opening environment for that play. And then Edward left and said, I'll see you all in about a week or ten days as we muddle through the process. There was never a moment in that rehearsal process in that first week or ten days when we didn't feel we were honoring a script that was given to us by a writer who we loved. It had nothing to do with whether the writer, in this case Edward, was in the room there was not even a thought about, oh, am I the director, so I should have sort of a point of view and that, that should interpret the play somehow, or Marion or the actors saying, well, the playwright's not here, let's see what we can invent and make it uniquely and originally ours. There was a sense of we're collaborating on this work that has a truth in it. And we have a mission to uncover that truth, and it's compounded by the love of the body of work of the man who wrote that play that made it an exciting journey to uncover the truth in that play. And that journey was rather extraordinary because we were grappling on our own with the subtext, and then we sort of... Uh, worked on staging it in about 10 or 12 days, and then Edward came up and watched a run-through. And then that became a process of he and I having a dialogue about what was going on on stage. And I've, I've worked with a lot of playwrights. I've worked with a lot of live playwrights. And I have to say that 
the most rewarding experience I've ever had has been working with Edward Albee, and I've been directing plays for over 25 years now, and I can't tell you the amount of new plays that I've done and live writers. And Edward would ask a question if he disagreed with, an, with a piece of movement or a choice or something, say, well, why did you do that? And they would have a dialogue about why that was made. And sometimes it made sense and sometimes it didn't. And when it didn't make sense, we came to something else that made sense. And then if it did make sense, there was a sense of, oh, okay, well, that's logical, that's clear. But it was this dialogue that really was ultimately a collaboration for the play. There was this other entity. So it wasn't my directing. It, at a certain point, it wasn't even Edward Albee's The Man. It was the work that the man produced. That's another entity that we all honor in this process of working together that all of a sudden has a life that takes us all. And then we would talk about the play as if it was this other thing that had this life and we knew that that was the important event, the life of the play that is out there. So there, I, I, never, I didn't feel I had to deal with Edward Albee, the person's ego, or he had to deal with my ego as a director. We're dealing with this script that we all love and want to illuminate and bring to life. And I, don't, I haven't had that experience. A lot of playwrights say, oh, this, I don't see it that way. You have to do it this way. Or there's very, much more controlling in a way. Even though Edward knows exactly what he wants, the process that we go through to get there is incredibly enriching versus limiting. I mean, I've you know, walked down on situations where writers want to say, well, just do this play this way because that's my play and that's what I want. And there's no process anymore. Then you can hire somebody who's a traffic cop or a conductor on a subway and just do it. it. This was a different and unique kind of experience. And it still remains one of the uh, most interesting playwright-director experiences I've ever had in my career. Hmm. I'm glad. <laughs> you want to talk about... Well, no, I think, I think what you say is absolutely valid. I love asking questions. Ah. Finding out why, 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 people, why people have made the choices that they've made. It's the only, it's the only, that Socratic method, I find, is, is the only way to teach. Mm-hmm. And it's the only way to, uh, to gain real information. You don't go, you go around making declarative statements all the time. Find out why people are doing things. You know, so maybe they're right, maybe they're not. So it's the only way to do it, to... There are other intelligences involved rather than just the playwrights, and you assume that these people are not doing things willfully and just, just to be incorrect. You know? They may even have better ideas than you do, and sometimes it works out that way. It's fine. The only thing I really object to is, to continue answering your question, um, some things happen in theater that don't happen in any of the other performed arts. You get a um, string quartet together, rehearsing, what, the Beethoven Opus 131 C-sharp minor string quartet? Uh, and they're playing along. You, you don't all of, what the, the following does not happen. At one point, the violist said, I don't like that B-flat. 
and I don't like the tempo at which we're supposed to play this whole section. I'm going to do an F sharp instead of the B flat here. <laughs> oh, that'll be interesting. Well, if you do an F sharp, I, I think I'm going to do a, a D natural in, instead of the G that I'm supposed to play. And you know, let's move the tempo around. This doesn't happen except in our theater. People don't hang paintings upside down. Hmm. People don't hang parts of, 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 of paintings. People do not in, in intentionally publish a, a, an incoherent text in a book. It's only in our theater that the, 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 these procedures happen. And, and I don't get it. <laughs> and it keeps bothering me. <laughs> We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. It's not only the critics don't understand. Quite, quite often, critics take attitudes because they think that a play is probably not a good experience for an audience that wants less than theater can possibly uh, offer. There's, there are some critics who feel that the, it is their job to make the theater safe uh, for audiences. There are a few critics who understand the responsibility is to make the theater dangerous for audiences, so it can, so, so it can be exciting. Uh, you know, you do, you, if everybody does their own job properly, the playwright, the director, and the actors do their job properly, uh, then you're faced with uh, two other possible dilemmas. An audience that does not want to have the experience that the play demands them to have, well, that, that's a problem, you know? Say, so, okay, so you don't like it. We did our job properly, tough, you know? Nothing, nothing to be done about it. If there are critics who feel that uh, the play is asking too many tough questions and that the audience shouldn't be exposed to that, well, then you know you're faced with a critic who is, is a censor. And there's not, there's not too much you can do about that except hire somebody to shoot their knees off. Um, what you, what, you can't, what you can't do or what you shouldn't do is anticipate the dangers and cut the tough sections because you want a commercial success. Uh, or make it a little easier on, every, on everybody. You, you must never lie in the theater. You must try to tell. The only truth that matters is telling as much truth as you know how to tell. I mean, there's no absolute, absolutism to, to truth, of course. But you must not lie. You must not compromise too much. You, mean, you must not oversimplify. You must, you must not be so interested in commercial success that uh, aesthetic success goes out the window. You have to make, you have to make choices. And some people make some choices, some people make others. That's simple. One more thing. We, of, we often forget that critics write for their audience, too. And it's a huge disservice to the theater when the critic begins to write because they have an audience that's reading their work and they have a job. And the, the whole value system begins to get skewed in the way that the system works. It's the system we're in, and we have to sort of live with it and deal with it, but it's not part of the process of the art form, per se. And I even have no playwrights who want to get a good review, therefore make the work more accessible. The extraordinary thing about Edward is the work is continuously, to this day, to the newest plays written, dangerous and on the edge, without conforming to what the critics will, you think that they'll want to see and give a good review to. And it's almost like the, 
sometimes the artists themselves can feed into the problem. The question of whether you want to be your own boss or an employee. And I don't think any self-respecting playwright wants to be an employee. I think we have time for just one more question because we're coming, we're uh, just two minutes before the end. Yeah. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Who used the term well-written? Whoever used the term in this discussion tonight, well-written play? I'm fascinated by that because that is a term that is completely misunderstood. A play is either well-written or badly written. Yeah. Is that what you, is that what you mean or the conventional well-written play? What I do? Okay. I don't know how to answer that question. Do you? Uh, there should be infinite possibility of, 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 of infinite variety of, of, of obtaining the same goal without, without distortion of the piece. Uh, uh, no, 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 two, no two performances by a string quartet, of Beethoven, C-sharp, minor quartet, are going to be identical because you have, you have different people involved there. And the same string quartet is going to perform it differently one night from the next. But they all play the, the notes. They all play the notes in the sequence that they are written. They do, the, they do the proper tempi. They do the proper emotional intensity, this or that. There's plenty of variety ending up with, 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 with the, uh, uh, the proper goal. I don't think, what, what happens to me is, is if a interpretation slops over into distortion. And it's something that you can sort of sense uh, when it's happening. There are some directors, it's hard to believe in the world, but there are some directors who are show-offs. You know, there are some directors who, who feel that uh, everybody seeing their work is the goal of an evening in the theater. And quite often they do serious damage to a play because you're not allowed to experience the play because you're there to watch the gymnastics, the intellectual gymnastics of the director. I mean, that, that, that is a, a destructive director as far as I'm concerned. They do, they do damage to the play. But a, a subtle and intelligent director who, who finds interesting variations in the ways to achieve the playwright's goal, that's wonderful. We all, we all like that. We, we don't want carbon copies of our plays from one production to the next. We don't want that at all, because we're, we're dealing with, with, with different directors, different actors, and ultimately different audiences. But we do want our piece done. And there are lots of ways of, of getting the completion of that, it seems to me. David, you want to Again, this is Susan Stroman, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage, made possible through support from Stage Directors and Choreographer Society, the National Theatrical Union celebrating five decades of uniting, empowering, and protecting professional stage directors and choreographers. Visit us online at sdcweb.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theater is made through the words of the people who make theater. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.